Delicious of History and a podcast. Oh, wow. I just bombed that. Uh, <laughs> hi, welcome to Delicious of History, a podcast about interesting people you probably didn't learn about in school. I am Faga and I am your history technological genius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Isa. I am a very anxious cat mom. <laughs> and we have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Poor, poor Pikachu. Hopefully we'll feel better soon. Yeah. Um, and we have a guest, uh, Danielle. S- S- oh, my goodness. We had a whole conversation about this. Danielle Sabuski. <laughs> <laughs> Get enough. Get enough. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so Danielle is a writer, podcaster, and professional speaker. Uh, Danielle's been making the Middle Ages fun, entertaining, and accessible for over a decade. A former college professor, she is the author of five books and hundreds of articles on medieval history. The creator and host of the Medieval Podcast and Extra Medieval, Danielle brings expertise and a sense of humor to the airwaves to dispel common myths about the medieval period and enrich our understanding about people of the past. When she's not reading, writing, or recording, Danielle can be found drinking tea, doing Krav Maga, or sometimes building a black backyard trebuchet i'm not doing very well today but (laughs) welcome (laughs) thank you it is a pleasure to be here thanks for inviting me yeah and you have a book that just came out that i read it was very fun um (laughs) good (laughs) yeah (laughs) um all about medieval courtesy Mm -hmm. sort of like how to behave Mm -hmm. so because of that i thought we should do daniel daniel of beckles is that how you say his name yeah which seemed like a really great idea when I was sending an email. And hopefully it's still a great idea. But uh, definitely a different – researching him is definitely a different vibe than my usual my usual fare. So I thought I'd start with the most – probably the most annoying question that you get all the time. How do you feel about Ren fairs? <laughs> um, I think that you can't take them too seriously. Like Ren fair is there for fun. So you're not really going there for a professional education. There are history fairs that will give you a professional education, but you go to a run fair to see like 18th century pirates and fairies, not just people from the medieval world. But I love the vibe that you get at a run fair where people are just being themselves in a space where often like people cannot express that part of themselves elsewhere. So they're good for that. I mean, definitely do your research afterwards. Anything you learn from Ren Fair, like go and check it out afterwards, but they're super fun. I just learned of this, the history, the origins of Ren Fairs is not what I thought it was. Apparently it was started by commies that like, basically, I I don't remember the whole history. Lady Isdahar did a whole video about it. She, but basically it's a, a it, it was like, Kami teachers who wanted to kind of like build like build a a festival or like a community kind of like it was like like a little like Burning Man but like 
softer and like cozier and you don't have to like <laughs> like live in the middle of a desert. I would say a little probably <laughs> probably smells a little better. And maybe smells a little bit better with more co- more like costumes that I'm a little I like a little bit more. I'll say I like the <laughs> but uh, but um a pair but I I've actually never been to a red fair but every single person that I know that goes to red fairs are I I like love all those people and <laughs> from what I understand it's like this very there's like this there's a vibe of it that um goes back to those early like communistic days that's just like you're just there to like kind of be yourself and be in community mm-hmm. and I have all mm-hmm. I, I know this is a tangent and I know we have to get back we have to get into the book <laughs> I promise I know I know um, but I'm, I'm this is exciting the um I have a whole other a whole theory about Ren Fairs as like a place where Americans especially like get get to like get to explore folk culture and um and that's kind of like some of the best things come out of that um mm-hmm. and I think they're very wonderful not that I've but I've never been to one so I don't really know we should go I had no idea you hadn't gone Pennsylvania Red Fair <laughs> I know. is only like an hour and a half away anyway yeah and <laughs> I know okay. I enjoy it because Jews not super welcome in medieval England and so yes yeah. uh that's always fun to be able to yes. be there and have fun um I told my wife once that I wanted to make one of those hats that they made Jewish men wear. And she looked at me like I was insane. She was like, why would you do that? And I'm like, I want to remind everyone of our history. (laughs) Yes. I mean, for real though, people should not forget that history and the fact that you were supposed to wear these hats or they all appear in like manuscripts and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. in uh, 1215, you were supposed to wear, at least that's the papal ordinance in 1215 that you're supposed to wear a patch that shows that you're Jewish and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So like that shouldn't be forgotten. It's not sure. usually the vibe that you get at Ren Fair though. No. Um, <laughs> but also those hats are like just, I don't know, they look funny to me. There's something, there's just something about them. They're Smurf-like. They're Smurf-like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, they're just really intense. Mm-hmm. So um, Daniel of Beckles, um, right. the reason we care about this guy is he's We'll start with saying he's known for writing the book of the civilized man, which is an etiquette book from mm-hmm. either the 12th or 13th centuries. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the book that you wrote, Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners in a Modern World, has some quotes from Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um, it is 3,000 lines of Latin verse that I did not read. <laughs> <laughs> By the time you sent me that translation, I was like, oh, maybe there was this part where it said something about like not clipping your nails in the corner of the room. And my initial mm-hmm. thought was like, who does that? And then I remembered many, many a trip on SEPTA, which is our local um, <laughs> metro system here. And I'm like, you know what? I have seen people do that. <laughs> and it was yeah. clipping, weird. You say clipping, <laughs> clipping your nails? Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, SEPTA, SEPTA, uh, <laughs> the writers of SEPTA uh, have a couple things to learn from medieval etiquette. From books, Daniel and right? Beckles. I'm kidding. Oh. Yeah. No, <laughs> group of people. But when it comes to like broad society, people are being trained by the church. So these boys are coming up in a church school. So a lot of this 
book of the civilized man is about how to be a godly boy. So like trust in God, make sure that you are living in ways that are in line with the church's teachings. But the fun stuff is where he's teaching you like how to sit at a table and not be rude. Because a lot of the times if you're being educated, you're probably in the upper class and you might be learning to be a knight later on, or you might just be learning to be, hopefully, have a bishopric or something like that. So you need to have really good table manners. So the stuff where he's talking about, like, don't wipe your nose on your sleeve or, like, don't pick your teeth at the table, that's the stuff that I like best because it's so human and it's so common and it's the type of thing that we are still teaching children today. So when you Google this guy, um, it says that he was a potentially a member of King Henry II's court. And where I found actually useful information was uh, from those translators you sent me. So Fiona Weldon, and particularly, like I found a, I think a new chapter from Fiona Weldon. I think it was new because I couldn't buy it. And uh, Olivia Spencer and Francesca Petrozino. Petrozio. That's wrong. <laughs> I think it's Patrizzo, but I don't know. Patrizzo, sure. <laughs> I haven't met her. I am killing it today. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so, and I found way more interesting information from Fiona. And I kind of, before we wanted to get too deep on Daniel and all the like sort of weird um, mysteries surrounding him, I wanted to kind of ask you about what life was like for a somebody who may or may not have been, a, I would assume, kind of lower member of uh, King Henry II's court. Yeah, it's not for certain that he was part of Henry's court. I mean, there's nothing certain at all about Daniel of Beckles. All we have really is the book of the civilized man. And then we have it in later copies. So there's that's the thing about the Middle Ages. You have stuff that's copied and sometimes it has an attribution and sometimes it doesn't. And that's really, really normal. You are often trying to, especially if you're a churchman, and again, these are the educated people, you're trying to disguise yourself most of the time because it's the work that's more important than you are. And then the other thing that's really important to remember about this kind of thing is that it's almost always lifted from other places. They didn't really care about plagiarism. If it's wisdom, it's wisdom. You just recycle it and recycle it. So at the end of the book of the civilized men, it does say old King Henry taught us about stuff. And so is this possibly a reference to Henry II? Maybe. So what it's like in Henry's court is you are um, well, it's an interesting court because this is the court where you have a whole bunch of people called the Devil's Brood. So these are the princes that are in rebellion against their dad. There's Henry, the young king. There's a guy called Geoffrey. There's Richard, the Lionheart. And there's John. They have other siblings as well. But these are the important ones. So it's it's a little tense in Henry's court. And you really want to make sure you're in with the right people. And what's interesting about this court in particular is Henry's Henry II's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, comes from the south of what is now France, and she brings all sorts of her manners and her etiquette. And so there is all sorts of stuff happening at Henry's court that is from her influence. So we have um, this courtly love tradition that's happening, and there's lots of like troubadours, there's lots of songs. So it's a sophisticated court where there are people that are speaking many languages. They're speaking at least French. In fact, no one is really speaking English at the court at this time uh, because of the, the history of England. It after the Norman Conquest in 1066, people were speaking French at the at the English court until about the 14th century when it really was common to speak English. So they are 
they are speaking French. They will know some English, but that's not sophisticated. That's not what you want to speak if you want to get in with the upper classes. And then you're you're also understanding the specific French of Aquitaine and then Latin as well. So these are like educated people. They're well-mannered people and they love courtly love. So that is what it's like at Henry's Court at this time. I loved all the stuff about courtly love um, because it's one of those (laughs) things that just stuck out to me from my education. I had a very good English teacher in high school who taught us the once and future king. Excellent. Um, Yeah. And so we did a lot of stuff around all those themes. And also then then we did Don Quixote and we did stuff around courtly love with that as well. Mm -hmm. I still can't believe they made us read Don Quixote in high school. That's Um, impressive. Yes. Yeah. Um, I read like 150 pages a day because I spent the summer in Germany and not reading Don Quixote. So that's <laughs> the end of the year. And it didn't occur to me I could just not read the book. So I, I read it. I'm very happy now that I read it. <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the things I stumbled across that I didn't feel like I really understood because this is an era I know so little about um, was the anarchy. Is that part of this, like the rebellion of his sons or is that a different? This is thing? different. Yeah, this is different. So this is before uh, the time of Henry II. So he is kind of the result of the anarchy, like his kingship. But the anarchy was a time when um, the first Henry died. And he had said, my only legitimate heir is a woman, Matilda. She should take over. Um, But Matilda was on the continent when Henry died. And so her cousin, Stephen, went and usurped the throne and he got himself anointed, which you'll know from the book means that he is blessed by God at that point. And then what are you going to do? So yeah, what happened was Matilda fought to fought to be the queen of England for a really long time. They could not make it happen. Um, so then they agreed that Stephen could live out as king of England. And when he died, her son was going to take over. So that that is related to Henry II and that like that's how he became the king. But the anarchy is not actually part of Henry's story after that. I was actually wondering when reading that part, um, I loved the mental image of Stephen like just hustling over to a church. Yeah. But I, I, I was sort of wondering like what did they think would happen if God didn't approve of the person getting anointed? Like could someone just show up and be like, anoint me? You can always – Yeah, you can always get around it. The major part of it, there's two things that make a problem. One is that Stephen is anointed, so he's been blessed by God. And the second is that Matilda's a woman. So, you know, how can she be in charge of everybody? She's a woman. She's obviously weaker. And then the the other thing about that is that if Matilda is married, um, this is before like the time of Queen Elizabeth II where her, her husband is a consort. Like, they will have a king and that could be a foreign king. It's likely to be a foreign king and that's not good for them. So yeah, there are a lot of reasons why Matilda didn't get to be the queen of her own country, despite her dad making it possible um, or at least making people swear that they would follow her. There's a lot of reasons why, but the major one is that she's female. (laughs) That's a problem. Which brings us to gender in Mm -hmm. the court and not just in the court, but just in the world around the potential Daniel of Beckles's. Um, mm-hmm. so there's a couple of them. I don't even know. I just wrote gender in the court. That's not helpful. <laughs> um, um, so you, you said like, for example, Matilda couldn't be, well, she could have, but it was unusual for a woman to become the leader of England. Mm-hmm. What role would women have had in this sort of society that Daniel is talking about? Well, it's a good question. 
I mean, on paper, they're supposed to be submissive and they're supposed to be quiet and they're supposed to just do basically whatever the dudes want. In reality, this is not what it was like. You had women who surprise are humans and have a lot of agency. So when it comes to politics, for example, and this is something that is in the book, Queenship in Politics, they were working sort of behind the scenes and they would work relationships and they would work networks. And not only are they giving birth to children, but they're also making sure that the those sort of kinship relations that women are still taken care of a lot these days, they are taken care of on a bigger scale, political scale. So they know everybody, they know how that they're how they're related to what degree, and they know who would make a good match. And then they're also often, if they have a good match with the king, they are giving him advice because many of these queens have been raised to be queen. They are super educated. They know a lot about what's going on. They've been observing their whole lives. And a lot of queens are actually very, very powerful. One is uh, Eleanor of Castile, who was married to Edward Longshanks, if everyone has seen Braveheart, that guy. She was just super politically involved and active to the point at which people grumbled about it. But it's because she was so educated and she learned so much from her parents about how to rule a kingdom. So they were women were supposed to be in the background. In reality, they do make up 50% of the population. So you'd see them everywhere having conversations and actually being involved in everything from politics to everyday life. Yeah, I was really intrigued by the there was a story in your book about how the queen could sort of be the like get out of jail free card for the king if he was in yeah. a tough situation politically. That's um, right. Because she could just they could just be like, oh, I was going to like kill all those people. But, you know, my wife said I shouldn't. And, you know, yeah. happy wife, happy life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it makes him look so strong and masculine, right? Just as like a very quick aside, I, I find that the history of like gender politics in medieval the medieval era is so freaking fascinating and mm. if you um i highly recommend um to everybody in the world but especially textile people if you're interested in textiles uh the subversive stitch um by rose Rosalind something oh gosh I don't know it's called the subversive stitch and one of the things that blew my mind about that book was not like it's not like that you know of course like women had like super duper equal rights but so many were like running businesses and were crafters and like and there's this just kind of uh like like the mainstream, like mainstream academic thought that, um, or like mainstream popular thought that the Renaissance was like just a move forward in progress, but women just lost so many rights <laughs> during yes. that time, and it's crazy. Um, so it's like, yeah, not like it would have been easy to be a wi- a woman in medieval England, but it would have gotten worse, from what I can understand. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, it was not the worst time to be a woman. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And what's interesting is when people look at sources, sometimes they take them at face value, right? So Mm. if you see a sermon where the guy is like, everyone, you know, women need to be quiet and don't wear makeup and stuff like that. In part, they're saying that because that is what women are doing. They're going out and doing Mm -hmm. stuff, which is why you have to have, you know, someone saying, stop plucking your eyebrows because they're doing it. So. It doesn't mean that this is how women were. In some mm. ways, it means they're doing the opposite. And that's why you have these sources existing. Yeah. 
Oh, it's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And I loved like the amount of power that certainly a um like a wealthy woman would have had in the home of like she was really running the home, like really running the home. Like this mm-hmm. wasn't like a take care of the kids and oh you're running the home, go clean something. You know, who'd be like the lady of a manor or whatever. Yeah. It was like really impressive, like the logistical knowledge that they would have had to have. Like reading yeah. when it, yeah, reading your book, I was like, wow, I'm really glad I don't have to do that because I can't <laughs> even keep track of how much you know, flour I need to have in my house. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're at the top of the heap, you have people to help you and you do delegate. And that is a good way to make sure that everything is running. But you do have to have a sense of what's going on. And when men are away and people actually traveled quite a lot in the Middle Ages, it's kind of a myth that they didn't. But especially if it's a Lord, he's going and he's checking on things and he's going off to war. Or he's going to a council. He's gone a lot. And the women are in charge. And when you think about times when, for example, in the 14th century, you have the Hundred Years War, there's a lot of times when men are away and the women actually have to defend their own home, their castle. And so they are taking care of this business. I think in you'll you might remember from the book I talk about Margaret Paston, who's like, okay, John, when you go to market, don't forget to get clothes for the kids or like clothing to make clothes for the kids and some crossbows. You can find them over here. Make sure that you bring some home because we need some. <laughs> awesome. We need to defend our place. Yeah. And so like women are involved in these things that when we look at popular media, they're not supposed to be involved in, like they're supposed to sit and embroider. And certainly that's happening, but they're also super active. I mean, just think about it. These are these are actual people, <laughs> 50% of the population, they're doing a lot of stuff. I love that. And then so the last thing I sort of wanted to make sure was clear for any listeners um, before we really dive in here to Daniel is the sort of levels of class right. you had in mm-hmm. I guess, England in the like 12th century or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I understand it, so you've got, or, or we're still in feudalism now, like we're pretty solidly still in feudalism as I understand it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we've got like the king who has all these like nobles and lords and knights and stuff who swear to him um, and have some land that they're responsible for. Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to like run off to war if the king says so. Right. Um, and raise an army and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But below those, those are the ones that I think a lot of people kind of are vaguely aware of because we see that a lot in popular media um, because, you know, who wants to be a peasant, right? <laughs> Actually, they had a really interesting, interesting time. They get more days off than we do today. Uh, <laughs> just more dysentery as well. Um, True. But, <laughs> it's a trade-off. <laughs> um, but there's more to there's more to it than just like the the aristocracy and the king and then the peasants down at the bottom. There's stuff in between. Mm-hmm. So could you give us a sense of that? Because I think that's kind of where people suspect Daniel might have existed in. Yeah. So Daniel's an interesting case in that he is a member of the clergy. So we at least that's what we think. If he's this educated, if he's concerned with educating other people, he's probably a member of the clergy, which means he he has more social mobility in that he can get a job working at the court. He doesn't have to be a noble to do that. His education is a, a pass to allow him to do other things. If you're looking at people who are not involved in the church, you have the king at the top, then you have the aristocracy, people who are born, landowning class. You have knights, 
and then you have tradespeople and merchants, and then you have free people, and then you have serfs. So there's a difference between free people and serfs in that like a free person will pay rent and they will work for a lord. A serf is bound to the land in a different way. They're not slaves. This is not the same thing, but they are meant to ask their lord if they want to do something, if they want to do an apprenticeship or they want to get married or things like that. The whole prima nocta thing is not a thing, just in case people are heading in that direction. It's not a thing. They, we're not allowed to sleep with people's wives. It's just not a thing. <laughs> so what it's is, been wait, what disproven. Is, what is the prima? I actually don't know what that is. Okay. Even the myth. I don't know. Yeah. I know. It's probably because you're younger than me, but when, uh, when Braveheart came out, um, oh. there was like a major plot point that the Lord could sleep with the the bride on her wedding night or oh. whatever, basically whenever he wanted. This is not a thing. You're not allowed to do that. It is against <laughs> it. the law. So when we talk about serfs, they're not slaves. There, there are a lot of laws in place to keep them protected. Did mm -hmm. people take advantage of their serfs? Absolutely. But there's bad actors everywhere. So just, I know people head in that direction the second you talk about serfs. A lot of people will be like, oh, this is this is a thing. It's actually not a thing. So you have mm -hmm. the unfree people, you have the free people, and then you have people who are living in towns, then you have aristocracy, then you have royalty. And then the clergy are around this again. So a lot of the clergy might be trained because they are uh, rich enough to be able to go to school. They don't have to work on a farm. Mm -hmm. um, but then once they have education, they could be moving around uh, basically wherever they could get work in society at the time. Yeah, and a lot of them would have been like third, fourth sons as well, right? Like of the landowning class, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I mean, it's not as one-to-one -one as we tend to see in media okay. where like if you're not the first son, then you're given to the church. <laughs> in fact, in the same the same um, session of the papacy that, that sat the Fourth Lateran Council that talked about badges for Jewish people to wear – they also said you can't just give your kids to a monastery because you're supposed to choose this life. So, you know, people are not just tossing their kids in a monastery and forgetting about them. So if you're not the firstborn, then you're probably not being raised to take over for everybody else. So mm -hmm. it's more likely that you are the one who's going to get an education. But it's not necessarily so. You might just be trained at home and then be expected to do something else. But yeah, it tends to be the lower son's in, in age rank that are being sent to be educated, at least outside of the house. There's lots of private tutors at home that are making sure that if you're going to be a knight, you still are educated. So lots of education happening. Yeah, it sounds like a really hard work to be a knight. Like you've got to be educated <laughs> and you have to like go outside and run around and hit stuff like all, yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like usually it is a I lifetime. think of it as one or the other, like it's, it's both. <laughs> Yes, it's both because they are going to be the people who are in charge of this land and they have to be good administrators and they also have to be classy. <laughs> so there is a lot to learn to be a knight and you also have to be physically able to defend yourself in battle. So yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of training. Going into Daniel for reals. So a lot of this I'm getting from the making of manners and morals in 12th century England by Fiona Wellen. Mm. So that's where I'm getting that from. Because I took one medieval history course and I've already had several things that I'm like, ooh, I wonder if that changed since I took that because <laughs> we're always learning. Says. We're always learning. Yeah. Well, I remember at the time her telling, tell, my professor telling us that like, oh, we don't actually know what plague was. And I was like, what? Um, yeah. Yeah. That has changed. Yeah. There was, 
I mean, there was always speculation that it was Yersinia pestis, which we have learned it is, but it wasn't possible to do the sort of ancient DNA testing that we are able to do now. So there was still um, there was still a lot of controversy even 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, that it was cholera possibly. But we know now Ooh. definitively, if you look at the skeletons, you take scrapings from their teeth, it's Yersinia pestis that caused the Black Death. But yeah, you're right. This is an evolving field always. Even though it is history, you think it's static, we're always learning new stuff. Yeah. And it's like, I think it's partially because a lot of this reading this this chapter from from this book, it reminded me of biblical studies of it's sort of like, well, they used this word. And so that kind of implies this. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, so like we said, the first point of uncertainty with this book is who actually wrote it. Yeah. Also, like, when was it written? hmm Because there's indications that it might have been over time or what have you. Um, and there's also more than one Daniel of Beckles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the the one clue is a weird way to put it, I guess, because it's just in in the work. Um, but you have the quote at the end, the old King Henry first gave these teachings, teachings, yep, I can read, for those who lack refinement, who are written below in this little book, here ends the book of the civilized man by Daniel of Beckles, let down the ark of the sail, may he who granted the joys of heaven to Elijah, give them for his desserts to Daniel. So, mm-hmm. That's where we get Daniel and Beckles wrote this because that's what it says at the end. But that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, because it could be he wrote it or it could be he compiled it or it could be he copied it. We just don't know. Yeah, and I guess this doesn't appear in earlier editions of this right. work, which is also the question is like how over how much time was this written, so to speak? Because um, it's like the first of its kind in English or it's not in English, it's in Latin, but in English society, right? In England, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there have been manners books forever, but it's the first one, as far as I remember, the first one in England. So it is an important one, but uh, yeah, it still doesn't mean that we know anything definitive right. about it, except <laughs> that it exists and we're happy it exists. Yeah. And so the old King Henry, for the folks at home, is probably referenced, like I said at the beginning, Henry II. Actually, this I was curious about this um, since his son was crowned. While he was alive, so it was young Henry yeah. and old Henry. How common was that? Because my mental perception is king dies, new king. Right. Yeah. It's um, it's complicated. <laughs> so it's not super common in England. In fact, it's very rare in England that you have a, another king that's crowned while the one is still on the throne. But in France, it happens all the time for a very long time. And it almost always was a complete failure. <laughs> so, you know, they would divide the kingdom up and then you might have somebody who's ruling at the same time or when they die, they might have it kind of split between three people or something like that. And it was almost always a disaster. But this is something that Henry II tried to do. So when I was talking about his sons, one I called the young king, Henry the young king, it's because they're both named Henry. <laughs> Henry the young king was given some land. Uh, Jeffrey was given some land. Richard was given some land. And John is famously called Lackland because he was given nothing. And he was not expected to be king uh, except for all his brothers died. So, yeah, what, so John's the Magna Carta guy, right? John's the Magna Carta guy. Yeah. So basically, Henry II's kids were in rebellion against him for their whole adult lives because they were like, you gave us this land, but you're not letting us run it. (laughs) So uh, it's a problem. Fortunately for Henry, I mean, 
in, in some ways, it's not fortunate in that his son dies, but when Henry the Young King dies, that particular problem goes away. But then his other three sons are up in arms against him. This is in part why they're called the Devil's Brood. It's also in part because they have this story that in history, they were actually the descendants of a sort of siren mermaid demon figure. The two-tailed mermaid that you actually see on the Starbucks cup. This is a woman called Melusine. <laughs> so this is another reason they're called the devil, devil's brood. That's so exciting. It, <laughs> it is exciting. It is exciting. I know. I've always We've... wondered about her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's Melusine. If you want to learn more about that, my friend Christine Morgan was on my, my podcast and you can hear all about Melusine. But yeah, this is in part why they're the devil's brood and in part because they're always unruly. And so in fact, when King Henry II dies, he's still fighting against Richard. And I think his last words are shame on a conquered king because he's not winning when he dies. And then, you know, Richard goes off on crusade and then John starts to stir up trouble. So there's constant trouble with these guys always. But this is one of the reasons why you don't give your son a lot of power when you're still king, but at the same time, you have a lot of restless sons if you last a long time. So it kingship is never super easy, right? <laughs> Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown or however that goes. Well, I imagine you get tired like yeah. after a while. Like you want to, like it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work to be king. I wouldn't want to do it. I, I, I love love the Magna Carta. Um, I used to work as a tour guide in DC and there's a copy of the Magna Carta in That's right. the archives. Yeah. And so I always had a fun time. I was shocked at the number of kids who didn't know the Robin Hood story. So that's how I would always present it. Be like, who knows Robin Hood? Who's the bad guy in Robin Hood? It's King John. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that Fox movie, that Robin Hood Fox yeah. movie is one of the reasons I got into this in the first place. <gasps> oh, that's so I love that movie. Have you seen that? You say, are you too young? I oh my gosh. She can't be she can't be too young as a Disney movie. You need you need to watch this. It's so cute. It's I, so cute. Yeah, I will. I think I have it on DVD because that's one of my favorites. Nice. Um, yeah. I remember watching it in college, so I must have had it on DVD because there was no Netflix. Um, yeah. It's days. on Disney Plus. Anyone that's listening wants to see it. It's so good. So good. All right. I have Disney Plus, so I will okay. I'll go and check it out. <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, second only to Mel Brooks's <laughs> no i can't even say that I, no I, that's not true it's actually i think it's better it's better it's, <laughs> it's better <tight>. um, <laughs> so let's see so henry probably didn't have anything to do with the writing of this is this sort of like is this the sort of thing like when you work for an academic institution where like everything you do belongs to them <laughs> so it's like i'm in the court of henry so i have to be like henry's great he helped I mean, me do this yeah, it never hurts to butter up royalty, right? <laughs> it never Suck hurts. Suck up to the boss. Right, um, exactly. <laughs> so the Daniel. So there's in the 16th century, John Bale claimed to have seen a chronicle by Daniel Church. And uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. Daniel Church, so Eccelsinius. You can tell I didn't take Latin or a romantic language. He claimed to have seen this this thing, which I thought was such an interesting verbiage because it's like it's not even like, oh, he has this thing he found. It was like, oh, he's he saw it somewhere. He said he said this ancient chronicle of this guy who was a poet. And this is where we get the idea of Henry II as well, as I understand. Mm -hmm. um, and he says he's an illustrious man from ancient nobility. Um, and that would have put this at about 1180 
but there's issues with this theory. It seems like there's a lot of issues with this theory. This yeah. It's like maybe the worst theory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, As I understand it, there's no other proof beyond I saw this thing once in a library, mm-hmm. um, which to be fair, I think it was harder to cite things in this day. <laughs> yep. Um, and that and that name that I butchered, the e- Ecclesiastes, I, I don't know, wouldn't refer to Beckles, but Eccles, which is a different place. It is a different place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not the same place. Part of it, I think we know, was written after 1180. Is that correct? Yeah. One of the copies, and and part of it, you're right, I think is written after that point. So it gives us kind of a point at which it could not be written before that. But again, that still leaves us wide open. Oh, yeah. But uh, so for a while, I guess this was all we had. Like you said, it's a growing profession. And there's a lot of speculation about the profession of Daniel. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a part that reminded me of like biblical studies where you're talking about like the P author and the J author and all this stuff. Yeah. So one of the theories was a knight, which doesn't really make sense either because they don't talk about war very much in the poem, which is a really important part of being a knight. I was not surprised that you said this in the book, but this made me happy is is the sort of clarification of what chivalry is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So chivalry is basically the rules of war. Is that a good way to put it? It's oh, it's it's funny because I went to a conference one time and we had all these experts and the panel was what is chivalry and nobody could agree because it is a nebulous concept. There is no one code of chivalry. There are many different writers who talk about how to be a good knight and there's some things that are common, generosity, faithfulness, charity, making sure you're taking care of widows and orphans, but there is no one code of chivalry and so it is very nebulous and so I think it is a way of making warfare a little bit more glamorous, making it a little bit more acceptable, especially when you are clashing against Christian principles like thou shalt not kill, right? <laughs> this is a, a big one. And yet there's warfare all the time. So I think it's a way of making it glamorous, a way of controlling it a little bit so it's not just brutal. Um, but it is a way of giving it a bit of a gloss of, I don't know, Glamour is only where this coming to me right now, but elegance or maybe sophistication when really it is something that is supposed to be controlling the the warrior class. So it is meant to be for knights. And this is something that is in the book as well. Like chivalry comes from cheval, right? Horse. So these are horse warriors, which are knights. So it is it is meant to be applied to the knightly class. And so it's always going to be partly to do with war and masculinity. Yeah, so Daniel probably wasn't a knight. When I read that in the thing, I was like, did anybody actually think that? I mean, if he is educating people, he could be a monk, and you could be a monk if you sort of retired to a monastery. So it is still possible he could have been a knight, but it's likely that that probably would have bled into it at some point. Yeah, and then the other one that was a big theory um, was a schoolmaster, which Mm -hmm. makes sense because he's educating, and it's Mm -hmm. written in Latin. um, Mm -hmm as opposed to the vernacular, uh, which suggests a grammatical education is what she yes. wrote in the book. This is one that I remember from my one medieval studies class was apparently like a lot of people when they'd write in Latin at this time, 
they would like apologize for how bad their Latin was. Is that, yes. am I remembering that right? Or did I make that up? <laughs> no, you're remembering it right. It is a convention to say, I'm putting forth this book, but it's not really very good. That's my fault. I'm just not a very good scholar. Sorry, everybody. And it's just conventional. You're just basically supposed to ignore it. It's supposed to show humility, but you know, no one really buys <laughs> into it. It's just a convention. I kind of love, love it that. though. Oh, I feel like I feel like we could use maybe not like that level of, uh, you know, self-effacing. But I always think that like more academic books these days could use a little <laughs> little bit of humility in that way. I just I'm yeah. so I'm so sick of picking up like a book or an article. And this is the first time that anybody's <laughs> breached this subject. This yeah. author sucks and this author sucks and I'm awesome. Um, I yeah. always like the ones where are like, I love, I love a good, like, listen, I'm just trying it out. <laughs> but yeah. uh, fake humility is especially hilarious though. So I, <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is what I love about public history is I feel like, I mean, you do get this in public history. You get this in tour guides a lot. I love I love tour guiding, but oh man, there's some tour guides who think that that they can do no wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. But so I love about the books like what what you wrote here, Danielle, and the other ones too. And um, just what I hope we're doing in this podcast is just like it's a little bit more like we're we're all exploring here. We're all having a good time. Yeah. Here's what we know today. It's probably going to change next year. And here's what we think. And here's what is likely. And that's, I, I think, it. all you can really do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's more fun that way, too. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. So evidence has come out since the, like, I don't know, maybe a knight or a schoolmaster or something. And there's, I guess, two potential, really good potential Daniel of Beckles's. So the one I, I couldn't rewrite this in my own words because um it had too many words i didn't know um, <laughs> so this see is we're just we're just humble right we're just coming and doing our best <laughs> the number of times i was like i have never seen that word in my life let me google it welcome um, to medieval studies <laughs> <laughs> um i'm used to just being like that s is weird um but the <laughs> Uh, but this, this Daniel Beckles, this is so I say that because I literally copied and pasted this out of my source. Uh, so this person was where, where this person comes from is the cartillary of Bliber Priory in Suffolk, mm -hmm. uh, dating from the late 12th to the early 13th century, records Daniel, clerk of Beckles, granting the rent he received from Alan the merchant to the priory in order that Bly Blythburg would be Daniel's burial place. So he's buying a plot, as I understand yeah. it. Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, and this is also, this is the fun thing of history is like somebody, I guess, was looking at old land purchases and was like, oh, look, it's Daniel. Um, mm -hmm. At least that's how I imagine that happened. But he also shows up in a land dispute from, it says between 1189 and 1199, which seems like a long time to me, but I guess maybe in medieval studies, it's not a very long time. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> He's mentioned in the King Bench Rolls around 1205 um, because it says that Daniel of Beckles renounced his right. So this was the word that I had to look up. Ad Advosin? Did I say that right? <laughs> this is the, the right to place a rector at a church. Right. A-D-V-O-W-S-O-N. So he- Advosin, yeah. Yeah, there we go. So this implies that he was a fairly important person, that he had this power to- to put in put a rector in at a church mm -hmm. 
and he was probably a clerk, which makes sense because he's writing for boy clerks, which is such a weird word to me. It's definitely like the modern, like kind of clanging against like the what would have been normal. Um, what yeah. would have this Daniel been doing in his day to day life as an administrator? Like, what does a clerk do? So a clerk is not somebody who's necessarily involved in like pushing papers. It is a lower level of the church. So you are not a priest at this point. Uh, usually if you're a clerk, you're lower down. So you haven't like ascended the ranks. So, I mean, it's still not super clear from what we know what he would have been doing on the day to day. If he's working in the church, then he would probably be dealing with a lot of legal documents like you're talking about land purchases, um, making sure that people are paying rents or that kind of stuff, the day-to-day admin. But it's not necessarily about like pushing paper and answering phones. <laughs> Something weird has happened if Daniel was answering phones. <laughs> Some like Doctor Who stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's another Daniel um, who comes from 13th century documents. He's mentioned in a will by the Bishop of Norwich sometime who lived. No, that can't be right. I don't know. I wrote the dates 1244 to 1257 next to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Was that how long he lived? No, that is Okay, I was about to say, like, case. that feels really young. <laughs> That's the second case, I think. Yes, yeah, so this is the second Daniel. Um, yeah. And they know he's not the other. Well, they don't know. But, like, they think it's not the same Daniel because if he's buying a burial plot in whatever year I said that happened, uh, the 1180s, he's probably not still kicking. Probably not. Probably. Yeah. Not. I mean, it. it's possible. People could live for a really long time. I mean, like everyone says that because the average age of death was like 40, that no one lived past 40. A lot of people live past 40. It's just that's how statistics work. But uh, this is it's unlikely to be the same. <laughs> right. This won't be the first time you've come across it. Yeah. <laughs> it's If people got past like childhood and young adulthood they were probably solid for a while (laughs) a long time a long time that's why your princes want to take over because you're living too long (laughs) yeah it's it's you know when you have a bunch of kids dying in infancy that that's math Mm -hmm. um and it's also probably not a son of daniel because his son that seemed to have taken up the mantle of the previous daniel's stuff was named jeffrey Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm um, so probably just a completely different Daniel. Yeah. And this Daniel uh, held a lordship of Thorpe Parva in Norfolk, which is in service of, of a knight. Did I get that right? I was struggling to kind of understand where he was on the social ladder. Sorry. Tell me again. So this so this Daniel had a lordship. Yeah. And right. Was, so was that he was in service to a knight? If he's a lord, then he's above a knight. Okay. Yeah. He could still have been, like, knighted, but a lord is above a knight. Okay. I don't know where I got that from. But there is a lord that he's, like, that's above him. And so that's the idea is that he would be able to um, kind of look up and down the social ladder being somewhere in the middle. Yeah, because you have dukes and earls and counts and things like that. So, yeah. Would it be normal for someone like that to be writing in Latin? Writing in Latin? Certainly. Yeah. Writing at all? Maybe not. If you are a lord, you know, are you going to be bothering to write a school book? Probably not. But if you're going to write anything, you're going to write it in Latin because, first of all, that is what everybody is doing. 
all of the writing is basically happening in Latin until about the 14th century when, you know, vernacular languages, so ordinary people languages become cool for people to write in. But uh, also it shows sophistication. It shows education. So you're going to be writing in Latin no matter what you're writing, unless you're writing like a dirty limerick, which might be in English. (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, some madrigals. Right. And it could be somebody else entirely. Yeah. It could be neither of these people. It could be uh-huh. anybody. And then, you know, somebody who copied it was named Daniel of Beckles. And he's like, pray for me. And that's why he added it at the end. And so you do. <laughs> but yeah, welcome to medieval studies. We just don't know most of the time who's writing what. And in, in part, that's on purpose. A lot of times, like I said, like the author will obscure themselves on purpose. And sometimes they will sign it. And even then, it's not always certain who's written it. And so that's kind of who Daniel maybe sort of was. Um, A couple of options, take your pick. And uh, so a couple sort of at the end questions. Um, So as I understand it, this is perhaps the first book of its kind, um, but is there another reason why the text is important besides the fact that it's just like maybe the first in this particular context? It's important because it is still, in relative terms, rare to get such detail into manners. Like, And I say this because there's so much of manners that we learn just sitting at the table with our parents where our parents are like, stop doing that. (laughs) Like, You don't really write things down. And and so there are things that are obscure in the Middle Ages, like first aid, because we don't know how they pull the splinter necessarily because no one wrote it down because everyone knows how to do it. Like it's that kind of thing. So this book, the book of the civilized man is still really precious to us because it says things like, here's how you blow your nose and here's how to hide it. (laughs) You know, if you have to blow your nose and you don't have a handkerchief, like do it on the back of your cloak where no one's going to see it. Like that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So it's still, it's still important to us because a lot of the stuff in it, that's about Christian teaching, like how to be a good Christian. That's so common. We see it everywhere. But things about like not picking your teeth or like not belching in front of people or like making sure you're not passing gas at the table. Like these are things that you still don't see all that much in relative terms when it comes to this kind of thing. So uh, whenever you have something like this that is that is so detailed, it is a rare and precious thing and we are happy to have it, especially if it's hilarious like this one. <laughs> I love hilarious old documents. And so there's, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, there's like an obsession in North America, certainly the United States, with this sort of glorified version of medieval and Renaissance life. And I say both of those because they tend to get conflated. We've got like medieval times, which I have never been to actually. Um, right. And Ren Fairs and my personal favorite, the Society of Creative Anachronisms, right. which I've not attended, but I appreciate that they have the word anachronism in their name, mm-hmm. which is an honesty to that. Um, so where do you think this... <laughs> Where do you think this intense interest comes from? Like, why why are we so hype about medieval Europe? Um, I think because it is a good place to play because it seems pretty far away. And as long as you are sticking to the nightly class, for example, it's a fun, it's a fun place. So like, I remember reading a poem, I cannot remember the poet's name, that was basically saying, uh, when people imagine themselves on the Titanic, they don't imagine themselves in the lower classes. And I think it's the kind of thing, that same kind of thing where when you imagine yourself to the past, you imagine the fun parts like going to a joust or like going to a ball or having a feast or things like that. And so that's fun. That's fun to play in. And because it's at such a distance, it feels very far away. It feels so different that you can be a different person in it. And that's kind of the opposite of what I'm doing. I'm trying to collapse these things and say, actually, 
we are so similar and that's what I think is fun about it. But I think that it's fun to play in the past because it seems different and it seems like a place where you could have an identity that maybe had more power or more glamour than you have today. So I think it's a fun place to play, which is one of the reasons why I don't begrudge anyone wearing like an anachronistic corset at a Ren Fair because they're just having fun. And that that's half the reason that we are interested in history is because it seems like a fun time. Yeah. The very pretty dresses and stuff. I always, right? I love yeah. run fairs. I love, I, I usually don't dress up, but someday I'm going to go in a Star Trek outfit and be that obnoxious person. Pretending <laughs> <laughs> to be on a weird Star Trek planet. Because uh, that seemed yeah. to happen at a weird amount in that show. It's true. <laughs> it did happen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They also went to 20th Century Earth. I have this image of them having 20th Century fairs. Yeah. And like Star Trek, like four in 400 years, be like, look at me, I'm wearing a fedora. Yeah. Hundred <laughs> percent. So, what can we learn from medieval life, and what? Sh- I mean, I think it's pretty easy to say what we should leave behind, but what what can we learn from them that's like beneficial? I think it's something that everyone says, and that is like it's a slower pace, right? So there is more patience, and when you have more patience like that, it gives you a bit more time to um, be connected. So when I think about ordinary people, I think about their wisdom that they have around things like plants. Like if you are waiting for something or someone because you don't know exactly when it's going to happen, you have time to look around and see how things are growing, what they look like. You can learn a lot of stuff by experimentation because you have a little bit more time. And so I think that is something that's really important. And when it comes to the things that they've written down that we should take into our lives right now. I don't think we should take into our lives right now that kind of super gendered way of interacting with each other. But there are values that are present in chivalry, for example, like courage, that I think are important that we should bring forward because a lot of people don't really engage with that word on the day to day. And I think if we did, maybe more, maybe we would have the courage to do things that look really scary. So things like courage, like generosity, like taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. I think those are important to learn from the chivalric texts that we have. And then actually taking the time to just kind of slow down and be present. I think that's an important thing to learn from the past. I like that. Um, I'd never really, it makes sense. I'd never really thought of the medieval era as slow, but that makes sense. Slower, slower. Sure. I mean, slower, obviously, also just because, like, you know, information moves slower and people move slower. That's it. In using, so you use Daniel Beckles and other sources Mm -hmm. in your most recent book. I was curious about your inspiration for that particular topic of of, um, courtesy and uh, your process for writing it. Right. Well, the actual like kernel of the book came from my editor at Abbeville Press. She was like, would you like to write about this? And I was like, of course I would, because this is the stuff that I love, that human element, all of those little cultural things that teach us about how people interacted with each other. So when that idea was sent to me, I was like, I'm definitely doing this. And then it's just a matter of collecting things because this is stuff that I'm reading all the time. Um, And as I was saying on my own podcast when I was talking about this book is that you see little bits of advice in almost everything that you read from the Middle Ages. People love to give advice. They still love to give advice. We can find that everywhere on the internet, anywhere. Uh, So you just kind of collect these little bits that people have left for you. And what's really kind of lovely about that is that people write this wisdom 
on paper, on parchment for us because they are trying to be generous to us, right? Even if we don't want to take their advice, it is a generous act to write down something that people um, are thinking is worthwhile for you later on. So it was just kind of a joy to collect all this advice from people and bring it together and hopefully bring it together in a way that is illustrative of the ways that we are similar and things that we can learn from the Middle Ages. Yeah, I love that. And like is definitely a fun book. Definitely recommend it. Um, so Thank Chivalry you. and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. Um, I would have loved this book. I, once in high school, I went to the library and asked if they had any books on just like normal people mm. in medieval Europe. And they looked at me like I had 15 heads. Um, <laughs> yes. and so yeah. this, this is the book I would, I was looking for at the time. Oh, good. Um, so I, uh, it's it's definitely great, and it's uh, one of several, like, how to live like a monk, um, mm-hmm. like a medieval monk, which I uh, have not read, but it I'm looking forward to taking a look at. So do you want to plug all your things? Sure, sure. So Chivalry and Courtesy is my fifth book, so you mentioned other ones. Um, people who are interested in daily life stuff might just like uh, Life in Medieval Europe, which I think is only available as an ebook right now, but that book is laid out in terms of questions. The table of contents is questions. So if you just have lots of questions, you might enjoy that. And then I have two other books after that. And then I do the medieval podcast every week where I interview people and we talk about just everyday stuff like pigs and laundry and sex and the church and all sorts of stuff. Whatever I find interesting, we talk about on the medieval podcast. And it's just called The Medieval Podcast. And then you can find all my stuff at daniellesabalski.com. But if that is too hard to spell, I totally get it. <laughs> um, I'm on social media at five is in the digit M-I-N medievalist because I started writing as the five minute medievalist. Cool. Thank awesome. you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> this was so fascinating. <laughs> thank you. It's a pleasure yeah. to be here. Thank you. It's a, like this is something I didn't think about when we started this is like how many cool people who know about different parts of history than I do. That I was going to meet. So this it's is definitely fun, right? a part of history I don't know very much about, and I'm very excited to learn more. Um, <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to D-Listers of History. If you enjoyed yourself, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen on. D-Listers of History is a member of the World Podcast Network. Head over to nycpodcastnetwork.com and give the episode a like to help our rankings. A huge thank you to April Keys for the use of the song Misfit from her album Mountain View. You can find her on all the various social media platforms. You can also find us on all the various social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Everywhere we are just delicious of history without any hyphens. A big shout out to the folks supporting us on Patreon. If you want to support us and get access to exclusive content, uh, including a side conversation that happened in this episode that I had to cut uh, all about SEPTA rules and so forth. It's pretty entertaining. Uh, so if you want to hear that, come and join us over on Patreon. It's like a couple of bucks a month, but it makes a really big difference for us. All this and more can be found on our website, dlistersofhistory.com. Again, no hyphens, just smush that together like a German compound word. (laughs) Our episodes release every other week. Our next episode is actually coming out on Christmas Day, December 25th. And we will be chatting with David Page again, uh, the creator of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, all about... uh, Jewish Christmas and Chinese food and General So's chicken and just all that cool stuff. Uh, so come and uh, spend your holiday with us if you are so inclined. 
Um, and now for a episode-relevant audio drop. 